You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. This is in conclusion to Paul's teaching on unity in the church, how Christians should treat other Christians. In our study of of the letter of Romans, Paul has devoted some 35 verses to this topic, beginning back in chapter 14, verse 1, and then concluding this morning with this passage. And uh, I think Paul's aim here is to teach the church how to stay united, stay united together. Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Lord, as just expressed in this song, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory today. And may we behold you from your word and the beauty of Jesus, how we're to treat one another and welcome one another just as Jesus welcomed us. And so, Lord, help us to receive this message now with ears that can hear and hearts that are ready to receive. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. One of the concerns of God for his church, our church, Uh, local churches 
at our meeting everywhere is unity, is unity. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed six, uh, that the church would be marked by six characteristics. Uh, he spoke of joy, holiness, truth, mission, unity, and love. And the characteristic that Jesus prayed for in John 17, the, at the greatest length, at least in terms of verses, was unity. Here's what he prayed. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, speaking of those who would believe the gospel in the future, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. It's interesting in Jesus' prayer, he, uh, devoting that many verses to that particular uh, mark for the church is that Jesus perceived uh, in his all-knowingness that there would be problems and challenges that would come about in terms of unity. And therefore, Jesus prayed at length about it. And therefore, it's not surprising that Paul devotes so much time to it here in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Jim Boyce, in his commentary, talks about that when Christianity burst upon the world after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was an extremely divided uh, place and people. Some were divided, uh, divisions were over national reasons. You had Greeks in that time hating the Romans uh, who had overpowered them in the world. You had the Romans looking down on everyone else. Some of the divisions were more racial or ethnic between, again, Romans and Greeks and Jews and Arabs and so forth. Some of the tensions reached back centuries of hatred uh, and, and actually still per persist today. Some of the divisions were religious. You had the, those who were uh, polytheistic, worshiping many gods. You had Judaism with one God. And then you had Christianity with its one God and three persons, including the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And so it was hard for us to imagine how deep these divisions were at the time of Christ's coming. Though when we think about our own day and time, we see how divided and polarizing our own times are. Against this backdrop of division was this group of people known as the church. It was such a peculiar thing then, just as it is now, because you had all of these diverse people coming together and it would cause folks to ask how could these diverse people come together and how could they be functioning so fruitfully and so beautifully in unity in the world and the answer was church we know the answer that is because they knew Jesus Christ it's the same reason for our unity today they knew Jesus 
They knew what it felt like and meant to have been accepted by Jesus as a sinner who had been welcomed into the family of God by Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus had welcomed them into his family was foundational, meaning that they needed to welcome others into the family for whom he died. It was the basis of their unity. This is how, exactly I think, how Paul's emphasis here uh, in Romans is communicated. Chapter 14, verse one, where we began a couple weeks ago, he said, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. It means to accept one another into the fellowship, to receive them, to love one another, to welcome one another. And that very claim Paul repeats in our text, chapter 15, verse seven, he says the same thing. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so as he concludes his teaching today, we find several motives here for doing that several motives for welcoming one another, for pleasing uh, others instead of ourselves, for for living in unity uh, with one another. I've adapted these from John MacArthur, and I think he's right when he says this statement. He says, if you don't have these that we're about to look at, these motives, you're not going to be able to succeed at doing this, at having this unity. And if you don't succeed at this, he writes, you violate a grave, a very grave concern to God, and that is the unity of the church. So what is it, these motives that he mentions here um, that he wants us to, uh, to seek out and to pursue in unity? What are they? There are six of them that he mentions. Number one, consideration of others. That's what he says in verse one, we who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This obligation Paul speaks of is a consideration of others. It's a love for one another, love for believers. Rather than having a posture in which we are are, uh, perhaps being divided by all kinds of opinions and non-essential kinds of things and being critical of one another and saying inconsiderate kinds of things about one another. Christians, rather, the spirit of an attitude of what he's saying here is that Christians are those who love one another, who speak well of one another uh, in love. I don't want to rehash too much what we've been talking about for three weeks, but perhaps some have not been here. For those of you who haven't been here, Paul is addressing this conflict between the weak and the strong. You saw the word weak there in chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, Weak believers, I think, in this case, are the Jewish believers who are struggling in the church to let go of some of their Judaism, some of their traditions that they were raised with, not eating certain foods that they believe to be unclean, not following Sabbath day laws. And and so the strong believer, the Gentiles in this case, um, he can have a pork barbecue sandwich if he like, Uh, He can take a hike on a Sunday afternoon, a long hike with his family on the Sabbath day, 
And it doesn't bother his conscience at all because he knows that he is free in regards to these things. But a weak believer is one who's coming out of a different background, doesn't yet feel the liberty to be able to do those things in his conscience. It violates his conscience. And notice here, Paul puts the burden on the strong believer. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. In other words, just because you're able and free to eat that pork chop doesn't mean that you should if it causes your brother to stumble. Sorry about all the food references, but it's just necessary. So Paul is saying here, you need to consider others before yourself. That's his motive. That's the bottom line. This is language is similar to that that he said in Philippians Chapter 2, verse 4, you may remember he said this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of, of others. A Christian is someone who is denying him or herself, who is living for Christ, and as a consequence of that change, that transformation, actually cares about how their actions and words affect other people, other believers around them. Now to clarify here, and we've done this several times, but to clarify, we're not talking about essential doctrines or something that the scriptures clearly say is sin. We're, 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 we're talking about things that are non-essential kinds of things. That's been Paul's statement. Places where we need to be patient with one another, where there may be some disagreement, maybe some Christian growing that is necessary, maybe some more word that needs to be learned along the way. Paul is not arguing here for compromise. He's arguing for consideration. Then there's a big difference between those two things. Paul is not saying we should try to please men by watering down the gospel and by overlooking sin and not calling sin what it's supposed to be or welcoming them in their sin. That would be an unloving thing to do. He's not arguing for compromise, but consideration. He recognizes in the diversity there's that the kind of love that a Christian has bears with the weaknesses of other brothers and sisters in Christ. A love that leads us to patience, a love that is willing to come alongside of, encourage, nurture, love one another despite the diversity over non-essential things. Obviously, this requires, secondly, a disregard for self. That's the second motive. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So if we desire to have unity in the church and if we're to maintain such unity, we have to have a consideration for others. And part of this is that we have to have a disregard for ourselves. And again, Philippians 2 is a, quite a parallel text in this. Philippians 2, 3, Paul said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is the way that we live as Christians, is not in ways that we live to please ourselves, but it is to 
with thought toward other people. It's to disregard ourselves. Paul gives an example later in Philippians 2 of Timothy. Listen to how he describes Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him. And here's what he says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's point one, isn't it? Consideration of others. Then Paul speaks of his adversaries. He says, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul, you see, that's what Paul's addressing here in Romans 15, that a Christian is someone in their disposition, in their motivations, their heart has been changed to where they are disregarding themselves and they're putting others first. Let each of us please his neighbor, he says, for his good to build him up. That's the goal, he says. Instead of causing others to stumble, as he talked about chapter 14, tearing one another down, again, chapter 14, verse 20, we're to have an attitude towards one another that actually builds people up. It doesn't mean we're not going to have disagreements from time to time. That is inevitable. But it does mean that how we handle those disagreements will look vastly different than how those disagreements are handled among unbelievers. One of the ways it does is a disregard for self will become apparent and a consideration of others. A third motivation for our unity is conformity to Christ. Conformity to Christ. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Our example in doing this is none other than Jesus Christ, he says. Thank goodness Christ did not live to please himself. Amen. We'd be in a mess of trouble today. But rather, he gave himself for us. Paul quotes Psalm 69 here, which speaks of the unjust treatment that David was receiving, and it anticipates the treatment that Christ would receive in this life, such things as hatred and mockery and mistreatment and agony and abuse. Jesus denied himself in the midst of suffering those things. He denied himself and he suffered for his people. That willingness to please God, even though it meant suffering, and rejection and reproach and death really is key to the attitude that Paul is speaking of here in Romans 15. This is the disposition. Christ was willing to endure all of this, being indifferent to his own pain, indifferent to his own suffering in order to please his Father and to save us. This is a pattern for us, Paul says. And again, the parallels in Philippians 2 are hard to pass up. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 <clears throat> speaks of Jesus, though he was in the form of God. Here's what he did. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form 
of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you want a vision for your life, this is a great word for graduates today. If you want a vision for your life, look no further than this vision right here. Set aside your life, empty your life, lay down your life and be conformed to Christ Jesus. There's no greater vision than to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Amen, church? Isn't that the gospel? Conformity to Christ. A fourth motive of maintaining unity in the church is submission to Scripture. Verse four, he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, Paul says this in regard to verse three and his quotation of Psalm 69. He's referencing that, but his point is, is that we need to learn from the scriptures. It's interesting, Paul gives us four quick truths about the scriptures here. You may, I don't think these are on your bulletin or your PowerPoint, but four truths about the scriptures. First, he mentions their contemporary application. He says, though written in former days, in other words, to an original audience, Paul is very much persuaded that the Bible still is written for our instruction today, he says. It's a contemporary application to it. Secondly, it has a Christological focus. And again, his application of Psalm 69 in verse 3 to Christ is a great example of, of how Jesus, when he appeared to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, said that all of these scriptures are about me, he said. And so Paul is alluding to this Christological focus of the Bible. Third, it's practical purpose. We think that the Bible is not just uh, able to make us wise for salvation, but, but notice he says it brings encouragement and endurance so that we might have hope for today. It's a very practical point, a practical purpose for us. And then fourth, notice it's a divine message. And, and I reference verse 5 here because notice that endurance and encouragement that he mentions in verse 4 concerning the scriptures, in verse 5, he mentions referring to God. That is a strong view of God's word, isn't it? That means that only, it is God himself who encourages us through the living voice of the scriptures today. God continues to speak. God has spoken in his word. He continues to speak what he's spoken in his word. That's remarkable, church. And in the context here, it's reminding us that our unity is, is in no way because we've decided at some point to water down the truth so we can all agree. That's not it at all. It, unity does not come because we focus less on the scriptures. That's not even unity. Our unity will be based on the fact that we're submitting to the scriptures of God. 
The more I submit my life in obedience to the scriptures, the more my discernment will grow, the more my endurance will grow, the more my encouragement will grow, the more that my life will be shaped to tolerate and, and even love and encourage weaker brothers and sisters, the more I grow to become the stronger brother that Paul mentions here, and the more unity there'll be in the church. It's as I submit myself to the Word. So in order to maintain unity in the church, we need to have a consideration of others, disregard for self, conformity to Christ, submission to the Scripture. Fifth, there needs to be a dependence on divine power. Notice Paul prays for unity in verses 5 and 6. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. Now may the God of endurance, he calls him, the source of our patience, the source of our endurance. Who is it? It's God. May God, he says, may God grant us to live in harmony with one another. Again, the expectation is not that we will agree on everything. That's not unity, but that we will have one mind. We will have one purpose. We will have one heart. We will have one devotion to the one Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And the fact that Paul is praying for this is a reminder that we cannot do this on ourselves, church. We have to have his help. How are we going to love each other the way that we're supposed to? How are we going to welcome and accept one another as Paul is talking about here? How are we ever going to build the unity of the church? It will only be by depending on God to do this. If verse 4 is about submission to the Scriptures, then surely verses 5 and 6 is a call to diligent prayer for these things. That's why you, you remember the apostles they devoted themselves, as Acts 6, they devoted themselves to the ministry of the word and to the ministry of prayer. It wasn't because they didn't know what else to do. It wasn't because they didn't know all the latest, greatest church growth methodologies and things. It's because these things have always been essential things for God's people, his word and our prayers. Our unity is a matter of prayer, submission to the word, conformity to Christ, disregard for self, a concern for others. Finally, the last motive, the glory of God. Paul alluded to it there in verse 6 that we just read that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then notice verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. What is the reason? What is the motivation for the glory of God? He says. Well, once again, Christ is our example, Paul says. As Christ has welcomed you, how did he welcome us? He welcomed us in our many sins, didn't he? He welcomed us in our own stubbornness, 
our pride, our self-centeredness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Surely that example, Paul says, the fact that he's welcomed you means something to you and influences you. Should it motivate you to welcome one another? That is being willing to, at times, set aside differences over non-essentials and to love one another, to be patient and kind and gracious and receiving of one another as Christ has done this. And you realize, Paul says, this is what brings God glory. This is a part of the glory of God, the testimony of God in the world. Why did Christ receive you as a sinner? It was for the, the glory, his glory that he did so. Why, why should you receive other Christians? For the glory of God, Paul says. You think about perhaps even now the person, hopefully you won't have an answer to this, but maybe there's someone in the church that you're struggling with Maybe someone that you're, you're a bit frustrated with. Maybe they're uh, weak. Maybe they're strong. And you would just love to set them down and sort them out. You know what I mean? Like set them straight. And Paul says, that's not the way. What brings God glory is to welcome them. As Christ welcomed you. What glorifies God is the unity of his church. Jesus prayed for this, John 17, 22. He says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. What a picture. Now, let me sum up verses eight through 13, period. I hope that you'll accept a summary of these things this morning. Because I, I think when you see what Paul is doing here, it's really a beautiful thing and how he's bringing all of this together about the glory of God. That's, that is his theme, I think, again, verses 8 through 13. Notice verse 8 and 9. He says, for I tell you, for, that's our connecting word, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs that's the first thing. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he's talking about Christ becoming a servant there for two purposes. One, to confirm God's promises to the Jews, the patriarchs, to Abraham. Remember, he promised Abraham that in his seed all of the nations uh, meaning the Gentiles would be blessed. And in verse 9, the second reason Christ became a servant, that they, he might glorify God for his mercy, that, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy in including them in his family. You hear this language there, and it should immediately take you back, if you haven't forgotten, all the way back to Romans chapter 11, right? This is when he discussed these things that at length where God is working to bring both Jew and Gentile together as one people, one family, united together in Christ for his glory. And so when Paul, inciting these verses in verses 9 through 13, he's citing there several Old Testament passages, he's really, I think, communicating to us that this has been God's plan all along. 
Yes, you're struggling weak and strong and you're struggling perhaps in unity with there in the Roman church, but this is not some new idea and this is not because God has gone to plan B and now that there's weak uh, and strong in there and problems. No, he gives them scriptures from the Old Testament to remind them that God has always intended to bring the Gentiles and Jews together into his family. Verse nine, Jot these down if you want. Uh, verse 9 is a reference to Psalm 18:49, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Uh, verse 10, citing from the law, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11 uh, citing Psalm 117.1, and, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and that all the peoples extol him. Verse 12, citing the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 10, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him, in Jesus, will the Gentiles hope. Now from the big picture statement, Paul is saying, he's reminding these believers here that wherever you go in the Bible, whether you go to the law in the Old Testament, whether you go to the prophets in the Old Testament, whether you go to the writings like Psalms, he says the purpose of God has always been the same. It is to bring the Gentiles into the same fellowship in which he has brought the believing children of Abraham to bring them into this glorious unity. Where the strong and weak welcome one another in such ways that the world, the world cannot help but fathom. They cannot help to stand back and see such unity and conclude there is only one reason for this to ever happen. And that is that God has done this through Jesus Christ and the gospel. We are a part of that plan here in Mount Washington, Kentucky. This one little local congregation representing many congregations or a part of many congregations of Christ, but our fellowship here, our unity here is to show forth to our community the glory and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such unity though doesn't come easy. But we ought to be encouraged as we look at this, if God could unite Jews and Gentiles in first century Rome, he can certainly unite us here. But in order to affect this unity, notice all of this stems, verse eight, that Christ became a servant, didn't he? We too have to become servants. Servants of the Lord, of course, servants of one another, humbling ourselves, having, as he says here, a concern for others, a disregard for self, conformity to Christ, submission to his word, dependence on divine power, and the glory of God. Verse 13, may the God Another prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound 
in hope. Let's pray together. Father, at times when we look at our current situation in the world and around us, Lord, and we hear these calls to unity, indeed it does seem like it's an impossible thing. But Lord, you are directing us here in this passage away from ourselves, and you are pointing us to Jesus and to the divine power of the Spirit that you are working in us for your glory. And so, Lord, we pray, as verse 13 says, that your power would abound in hope and joy and peace in our lives, in our congregation, in the congregations, Lord, churches around us. Or do your work in us. And as we think about these things, may we not lose sight of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, his perfect life and then his humbling himself and becoming obedient to death on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And as he has loved us and welcomed us, Lord, we pray that we would have that same loving and welcoming heart toward one another. Do this work in us, Lord. We pray today if there's someone here doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that even being here this morning and hearing our songs and our prayers and seeing the unity that we have in the gospel, Lord, that it might be a witness and encouragement to them and that they might turn from their sins and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.